0: Welcome to Dr. Cheryl's Podcouch, where we talk about all things parenting and mental health. Today, I have on a second-time guest, Phyllis Bagel, who is a certified professional school counselor and a licensed clinical counselor. She is a frequent contributor to the Washington Post and other national publications. Her first book that I interviewed her on this podcouch for is called Middle School Matters, and her most recent book is called Middle School Superpowers, Raising Resilient Tweens in Turbulent Times.
1: Phyllis, welcome again. Thanks so much for having me back. I think we now have evidence that we really enjoy talking to each other, considering <laughs> we had to reschedule. We yes, out let, of me, time just let me chatted. give
0: everyone a, a quick context for this was supposed to be Done last week, but we got on and we couldn't stop talking about all sorts of things and our ideas and books and being authors and all the things. So we actually had to reschedule. Neither one of us have ever done that before, but we just had such a great conversation. So I know today's going to be a great conversation too.
1: I'm looking forward to it.
0: Yes. Well, let me say that who knew that you could write two fabulous books about middle school, right? You would think one, okay, I'm one and done. I covered middle school, but not so much. So let's start with that. How did you, what's the difference between middle school matters and middle school superpowers? And what made you have the audacious idea to write two books around the same three years of schooling?
1: So let me just start by saying, and I'm saying this on the record, that was my last book about middle school. No more. But (laughs) I really never intended even to write a second one. I, I had written Middle School Matters and aimed to have it be the what to expect when you're expecting a middle schooler. Everything that could possibly go well, go awry, and how we could support kids through it and have them come out of it, having learned from the experience. And shortly after Middle School Matters came out, about eight months after Middle School Matters came out, I got this message from my school, and I think we all remember this very well, that schools were going to be shutting down. And I still remember actually a seventh grader that very day left a note for me that last day of school saying, hey, uh, Miss Fagel, when you get a chance, could you come to our class and tell us why pimples happen? And it really stuck out for me because everyone else was focused on getting hand sanitizer on the black market and what was going to be, and it really highlighted the phase From there, we know what happened. Kids had extended period of isolation for the most part. Certain parts of the country were more impacted than others. And when we returned, and I was at a school that returned fairly quickly compared to others, I was no longer working with the same kind of tween that I had been working with before we left. And the world has only gotten more chaotic since then. Kids today need a lot of extra help to develop resilience and to deal with all of the stressors that are getting thrown their way at a time when they're experiencing so much internal and external change as well. So Middle School Superpowers is more of a how to be a human when you're a middle schooler type of book. It is less in the weeds and more about things like navigating really complicated friendships and doing things like setting boundaries and rolling with Change and being flexible and learning how you can control the controllables and stay optimistic when things are hard. All of these high level things that are hard for anyone and important for anyone, but even harder for tweens today.
0: Yeah. So let's go back to something really important. I think that we have heard, and I hear it from teachers a lot, we have heard how, you know, kids today are not like kids of other years of the same grades. They have these deficits, they have these delays, immaturities, whatever, all the ways it's described. How would you describe what you're seeing? What are you seeing as the differences?
1: So one thing I always tell parents and teachers is that we get farther when we have a strengths-based approach. And so when people start talking about all of the areas in which kids are lagging, I like to tag on a sentence starter. It makes sense that kids are still catching up on skills. It makes sense that they're even more sensitive than they normally would be in the middle school years. It makes sense that they need a little extra reassurance or that it's harder for them to take risks. So the kids are okay. They are just adapting to very extreme circumstances. And that requires new skills and strategies.
0: Okay. So what, I love that conversation, the the sentence starter. I think that's so great. It's, it's like when I remind people when they're like, oh, I can't do this. And I say, yet, right? Just throw in a couple extra words and it really makes a difference. So what are you specifically seeing sort of when it comes to resilience and emotional regulation and the kinds of um, traits that we know are really important for child development, What's how does that look different in middle schoolers today?
1: For starters, I think a lot of them are having a harder time recovering from even small slights or resolving conflict, staying self-regulated as opposed to, you know, elbowing someone who they think bumped into them in the hall, making choices while also anticipating how whatever they decide to do might land distinguishing between funny and mean, staying organized. And what's challenging is that all of those things are hard in the best of times for middle schoolers. They're trying to impress their peers. They want to fit in. Friendship is everything. None of them have the ability to do any sort of future planning until about age 15 anyway. So they all need a lot of executive functioning help. So I've been calling them extreme tweens, the same middle schoolers, only more so.
0: Extreme tweens. I have not heard that before. I really like that. Okay, that's good because I think that parents it might feel alone in this if they don't realize that no it's really not just your kid and these are things that we're seeing all over the place. So, I love that. One of the things I want to highlight is that you actually are still working in a middle school. And I think that's so key, right? This isn't like you're not reflecting back on the years where you did or just, you know, citing research. You're you're in the weeds. So you talked about a strengths-based approach. I want you to break down more what, what that means to you and give us an example of how do you build upon a strength when maybe a kid is coming to you and all they kind of are feeling or expressing are their weaknesses.
1: So I think one of the things we have to be careful of is understanding the difference between being supportive and positive and strengths-based and what we've come to call toxic positivity. So when kids come to you and things are hard, to start by saying that does sound really hard, or I also would be embarrassed if fill in the blank, or I might be scared to talk to my teacher too if I thought they had looked at me funny the day before. So really acknowledging that whatever it is that they're experiencing is real I always say the small stuff is the big stuff, and the big stuff is the big stuff for middle schoolers, and resilience is kind of similar. We tend to ascribe expectations to different stressors. We expect our kid who lost a parent to really struggle, but the kid who got a point deducted on an inconsequential quiz to bounce back really quickly. And what's confusing about middle schoolers is that the severity of the stressor has very little to do with how they rebound. What they need are the set of skills and resilience is a set of skills that can be taught to allow them to recover no matter what has happened. And that doesn't mean they don't fall apart. They may fall apart, but it means that we help them figure out a path forward as opposed to getting stuck. Because we want kids in these years to continue to take social risks, academic risks. We want them to stay hopeful. We want them to have a positive self-concept. And we're up against a lot given the developmental phase.
0: Yeah, you just said a lot in that one answer. So let me underscore something you said. I love that you mentioned toxic positivity. Being strengths-based is not toxic positivity, Step one, it's acknowledging, empathizing with, yeah, that would be really hard. Oh gosh, I'm so sorry to hear that you were bare that way, right? That's step one. So you meet them right where they're at and then you kind of build upon maybe the strengths that you know that they have or the resources that they have. Is that what part two of that is?
1: Yes, and that's when the skill building comes into play. And I think one of the things that we... Under freight as parents, as educators, is the importance of teaching really concrete, practical self-regulation and social skills to kids in this age group. We tend to say, oh, well, they're depressed or they're overwhelmed or they're anxious. And what we then do is maybe send them to a therapist or Talk to the school counselor. And I'm not saying that's bad. I am a school counselor. I am a therapist. I think that's helpful. But sometimes there's lower hanging fruit that we can take care of. Sometimes the reason they're feeling overwhelmed is because they don't know how to ask a teacher for help or they're lonely when they walk into the cafeteria. They may not be lonely in other contexts, but walking into the cafeteria is really hard or being outside at recess when there's unstructured social time. And we can really help kids. Navigate middle school with more ease if we can help them acquire kind of a toolkit of strategies. So I'll give you an example. I had a, an eighth grade girl who came to my office and was complaining that she was so awkward. She couldn't talk to anyone. She didn't want to go to recess. She just wanted to hang out with me. And this was someone who was really well liked and had strong social skills to my adult eye and to her friend's eyes as well, but that was not how she felt. And so we talked about how do you enter a conversation? How do you know someone's interested in what you're talking about? What's the cue to jump in if you're trying to get a word in edgewise? Or is it a conversational move to simply stand by people? A lot of kids think you're part of a conversation just because you stand close to a group, even if you don't say anything. And taking the time to teach those skills even to kids who are not that weak in the social skills department, bolsters their confidence.
0: Yeah, I love I love what you're saying. So I even love that you point out the example that you gave, where it's not maybe the obvious kid who maybe doesn't have as many friends or is extremely quiet or shy. It can be the kid who comes across as very likable, who's still the low-hanging fruit here, or maybe the way I would think of it is just These are the things that parents can teach their kids. These are the things that we don't need a professional for. We just really need the awareness, right? And the ability to go, oh, maybe I could teach you a couple of ways. Like I talk to kids about bridges in conversation. So a conversation starter, and then they'll be like, okay, I said, how was your weekend? And then they're like, I got nothing else. And I'm like, okay, so what would be a bridge? If they say, oh, it was good. I went to a concert. What would be the bridge, you know? And so- just really building in that way. That's something you can just do in a car ride or making breakfast, just casual.
1: I think so much of the distress that middle schoolers feel relates to feeling powerless, to feeling helpless, to feeling like they're at the mercy of their emotions. So if you have a kid who finds the cafeteria terrifying and you've got a parent who's saying, oh, just walk in there. Everyone will be happy to sit with you. Or, oh, you're lonely? Just call a friend. It really doesn't take into consideration the 14 steps that that kid needs to take first in order to take that risk. And so when I work with a kid who's afraid to walk into the cafeteria, we might talk through what it would feel like to walk in and experience those emotions ahead of time. What's the best case scenario, the worst case scenario? Let's say the worst case scenario happens. What would you need to deal with it? In one example, a kid realized that they could take a book with them. And probably the most likely scenario is that they would walk in, they would feel awkward, they would sit down somewhere, no one would yell at them to leave, they might not know what to say, and it would be strange feeling until the food, until it was time to eat, and they could read for a few minutes if they felt super uncomfortable. And then they knew what they could do and they had a plan.
0: Yeah, that's so good. It's so helpful to remind parents about that. And it is easy, I think, as a parent. To be dismissive without intending to be. You don't mean to be when you go, oh, no, it'll be fine. Just walk into the party and just like, you know, find a friendly face and, you know, it'll be fine. Like, I, I know that's coming from a good place. But like you said, there's a lot of micro steps to getting to that point.
1: And a lot of the anxiety is not intuitive to us because it's been all anxieties are extinguished through small exposure. So, so many of the things that were really big deals for us a long time ago, we've had to do over and over and over again. And so they're no longer a big deal. And and we're so far removed that we can forget how hard it is. And one of the classic examples is a parent who will say to me, my kid never wants to invite anyone over. And they think their kid doesn't want to socialize. But what's really going on is that their kid doesn't want the burden of being a host and having to make sure that everyone is entertained and having fun. They might be fine going bowling or doing something else. So we really want to be figuring out what it is that's behind the behavior that we're looking at and building from there.
0: Yeah. And I, and I will say as having, I have a fifth grader right now and he is at a new school. So fifth grade is a pretty hard year to start a new school. And so I said to him recently, you know, why haven't you, he talks about a couple of boys that he's playing with, you know, cause of course me, I'm really, he hasn't had a friend over since school started. And so I said, you know, I'm just curious, why haven't you invited, you know, so-and-so over, you talk about them. It sounds like you have fun with them. Why haven't you invited him over? And he just looked at me and said, I just never even thought of it.
1: <laughs> like, I love that you started that with, I'm curious. I wonder yeah. because you didn't show any judgment or criticism. And that's probably what allowed him to relax enough to pause and figure out what was going on. Otherwise, he might not even have been able to answer the question.
0: True. True. Yeah. Maybe, maybe in another way, if, you, if a parent were to just have said, well, why aren't you inviting anybody over?
1: yeah and it might have
0: been? instantly and and that's you know something I think that I try to remind parents is anytime we're asked almost any question at all, it instantly is anxiety provoking. Do I have the answer to the question you're asking me, even if it's benign, so true, right, but you're right that curia I just naturally talk like that, like I'm curious, and I think that's a lot of practice, so I want parents to know that too. some things that might come out of my mouth and probably come out of your mouth on a daily basis. You're not, you're not any longer aware of that you're saying it in a certain way. It's just because you've practiced it long enough. It's like a muscle and it just comes out easily like that.
1: That's right. And you know, and you have enough of a sample size to know what will shut a kid down mm-hmm. because you've tried it the other way. I know I have definitely tried it the other way. And sometimes we're emotional and we can't help it. We, we say, what were you thinking? Or I can't believe you did that. And then we have to back dial a little bit if we want them to get to engage with us.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, one of the things when I was preparing and reading through um, this book that is, it's dense with information. It really is just dense with lots and lots of information is I was getting my hair colored and I was in a space with a total of four other moms. Two out of the four had kids in middle school and all four had teenagers. And in my case, I have a middle schooler, an elementary and a high. So I... <laughs> I have it all too. So, anyway, I asked them. I said, "Oh, well, if you could if you could speak to a middle school expert, what would you ask them?" So, these are their questions. I want I'm going to ask them. So, the first one is, "What would you say to parents of teens who feel like maybe it's
1: too late?" So, I do call middle school when it comes to parenting the last best chance. But what that indicates is that it's not the last chance. It's just the last best chance. And it's the last best chance because they're still so invested in not disappointing parents, in figuring out what's going on in your head. They always say they have a PhD in you, but it doesn't mean it's too late. If they're in high school, I have kids in their I have a kid in his 20s and it's not too late. He still is consulting me and asking for advice and they hear it differently at different ages. But what's really key is that wherever you are and wherever they are, that you figure out a way to communicate with them in a way that they can receive it so that they don't feel judged. They don't feel criticized and they feel like you're on their side and you're supporting them as opposed to lecturing them or telling them what they should feel or do. So never too late, but for sure, high school is not too late.
0: Yeah. What a great way to think about that. It's your last best chance, but it's not your last chance. Um, And it is so true. I mean, middle schoolers still do actually care about what their parents think. And I, you know, the data that I have read says that they, you're still their greatest influence, the greatest influence in middle school's life. Middle schooler's life is still their parent, not their friends yet. Yet. You're you're getting there. in high school, right? Um, But you're still their greatest influence. Do you agree with that?
1: Yes. And that's what all the research shows. And it's true for things like drinking too. So this is a chance to really not only influence them, but teach them how to make decisions, teach them how to use their values to have a more stable framework when they're faced with all kinds of temptations or confusion about what the right thing to do might be, especially when they're so impulsive at this age and they're in the throes of puberty. It's not so easy and you want to fit in. There's so much going on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: This is probably a translation from what someone else said, because it says, how do you challenge distorted thinking? So my guess is, I'm sure they didn't ask it that way, but my guess is what I hear a lot of is, oh, you know, my daughter thinks she's so ugly or my kid thinks that nobody likes them and they have no friends. Like basically they have these really strongly identified beliefs about themselves. How does a parent challenge that without it going sideways?
1: So this is another area where I think you can have very practical strategies. So my two favorites for this one, and I tell, I, I explain it to kids as the lies we tell ourselves. I might even print out a list of the top 10 distorted thinking patterns that kids tend to engage in things like mind reading or, you know, forecasting the future, thinking in all or nothing terms, catastrophizing and help them figure out how to identify when they're doing that. Using really extreme words like always or never, everyone hates me, that's a pretty good clue that you're thinking in extremes. But when it comes to that self-criticism and they are all so relentlessly self-critical, especially if you can get them to admit it in a group, which is normalizing in and of itself to know they're not the only one. They say things to themselves they would never say to a friend. We want to be teaching them cognitive flexibility. We want to be teaching them how To challenge that negativity. We can't talk them out of thinking that about themselves, but we can teach them how to challenge it. So what I might do because it takes five positives to make up for one negative. When kids are in a calm frame of mind, I have them write down as many positive things as they can about themselves on individual sticky notes. If they're struggling to come up with things, I remind them that it can be something very superficial. like I, I'm like my hair, it can be I'm a good listener. If they still are struggling, it might be what would your friend say about you? What would your mom or dad say about you? And then what I tell them is to put those sticky notes either in a binder or around their desk somewhere where they'll see them. And when they catch themselves talking negatively to themselves, force themselves to read at least five, of those self-compliments. And the key thing is that you tell them they don't have to believe them in the moment because we're not talking them out of their feelings. We couldn't if we wanted to. It's like trying to talk a middle schooler out of wanting to be popular. You cannot do that. But what it does do is teach them to think more flexibly.
0: Great advice. Not just good advice. Great, great advice. I love that. And and I want to underscore what we said. The goal is not to talk them out of whatever their belief is as Hard as it is as a parent when you see how hard they are on themselves, um, but it's to really teach them the skills to be able to get themselves out of that place.
1: Same same. if they're complaining that someone excluded them because they hate them. And if it's a middle schooler, it's not just they're excluding them because they hate them. They're also excluding them because their closest friends are all getting together without them. So they can talk about them and trash talk them. They tend to go right to that worst case scenario. So asking them to come up with some other possibilities, you know, as a sentence stem, you know, some other possibilities are. And the idea is, again, not to talk them out of whatever it is that they are stressed about. We can't. It's to teach them how to challenge that negativity themselves so they can have a gentler middle school experience. I mean, that's a life skill for all of us. Oh, yes. A, life,
0: a whole entire lives. That's absolutely yes. true. I'm going to ask you two more questions. Third grade. I know that you have um, some pretty clear thoughts, experiences about third grade. What for anybody listening who does not yet have a middle schooler, or maybe they have both a middle schooler and an elementary age kid. What are your thoughts about
1: third grade? I was really surprised when I went to work in a K-8 at how challenging third graders are. And the context for that question for everybody listening is that I had mentioned before we started talking to the producer who has a third grader that I consider third grade, the first, seventh grade, that it's an incredibly challenging year. Number one, we have kids who are starting puberty earlier, which could include hormones, but not physical changes yet. And so their moods are a little bit more all over the place, but they also have the same kind of social tension and sometimes Lord of the Flies behavior as the occasional middle schoolers do only with less empathy, and fewer social skills. So for me as a school counselor, I could spend my entire job, my entire school day navigating third grade. Yes.
0: And I think that is um, really surprising to a lot of people, um, but you you really nailed it with puberty beginning earlier. And a lot of that is a lot of the internal stuff. You can't yet see it physically, but it's happening internally it's like, oh my gosh, I didn't, you know, it's like I said, I could, I'm writing a second book about puberty and I could name it. Maybe it will, but it's not right now. You know, I thought I had more time. I feel like that's a very common parent statement that I get back. I just thought I'd had more time. Does that resonate with you?
1: Oh, it really does. I'm so glad you're writing that book. I've always been trying to convince people to write a book and call it third grade. So I'm hoping your book will, will, will accomplish that. <laughs> for boys, by the way, it would be fourth grade.
0: What would you say? For boys, fourth grade. Yeah. For boys, fourth grade. Mm-hmm. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Phyllis, I could, of course, talk to you for a whole nother hour, which um, maybe we will do at another time. But I really want to say to anybody listening right now, middle school superpowers, um, yes, Phyllis is an absolute expert in middle school age children, but this book will apply to you no matter what age your kids are, including teenagers. It really is the toolkit that parents can have access to, to help their kids with lifelong skills, like problem solving, with decatastrophizing, with just dealing with setbacks and adversity. I can't say enough about it. I think that that your first book, Middle School Matters, is a great introduction. Like That to me is, that's a great book to read when you've got a fifth grader. I may, if it's your first, especially, um, but maybe even now since it's post-pandemic and it's kind of a different time. And then this book, though, is like no matter if you've got a third grader or seventh or eighth or ninth middle school superpowers, I absolutely love it. Thank you so much for the work that you do and the compassion and the goodness that you bring into the world. It's very appreciated.
1: Thank you. And thanks for everything you do, too. I can't wait to read your next book. <laughs> we've we've got a
0: while. For now, let's focus on yours, um, so again, Middle School Superpowers, Raising Resilient Tweens in Turbulent Times. Um, this is available anywhere that books are sold. And if you have enjoyed today's pod couch, please rate, review, and subscribe. Thanks so much.